I can't do this. Yes, you can. Who knows? You might like it. Bodie, this is your friggin' wake-up call, man. I am an FBI agent. Oh, my God. I loved the Johnny Utah impression you were doing there. That was great. Welcome, everybody, to Ghost Party Radio, an in-depth and very serious exploration into the world of genre film hosted by two small-time cowards. I'm Trevor. And I'm Adam. Hi, Adam. How are you? Who wants to know? Great. Any listener reviews this week, Adam? No listener reviews this week, Trevor, but if the kind listeners would rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, podcast, anything... We will read your review on the top of the show. Roast us, please, because, boy, do we deserve it. I mean, Adam, Adam, in this case, is not lying. We absolutely deserve to be roasted. But if you're going to roast us, if you're going to be mean and I'm going to read it on the show or Adam's going to read it on the show, we need you to leave us five stars. If you leave us one star and roast us, guess what? It ain't making the air. But uh, let's get right into it, Adam. Uh, we can't have too much banter up top, as always. I'm going to introduce our guest. This is a cinematographer and director of photography that I know who's just so happened to have shot my second short film, The Vicious, now available on WatchAlter.com. And shot the film that we talked about earlier in the Blue Ruin episode, Zeeshan Yunus's Prefigured. Uh, a new friend of mine. I don't make a lot of new friends in my old age of 30 years old, but he is one of them. Please welcome to the show, the first time on the show of many, many visits, I'm sure. A good friend, like I said, and a film fan, Mr. Justin Moore. Hey, Justin, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah. Wow. That's that Adam energy you're bringing to the show now. <laughs> Can you really still call me a new friend? I feel like I've known you for like four years. I mean, but I haven't made any friends in the past four years. I was your, I was your last new friend. I mean, if we can even, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy you're even saying the word friend right now. I was trying to be nice to you on your podcast. Uh, yeah, let, just, let's let's just also, I want to pop in here and say I met Trevor, I think, two years ago, so. <laughs> but did, well, that is true, huh? <laughs> yeah. But we have a podcast now, and as everyone knows, uh, friends do not co-host podcasts together, or at least they might start as friends, but when you're five, six episodes in like we are, we basically aren't even friends anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like an arranged marriage. Yeah, it's just like, did you edit the episode this week, Adam? Like, yeah, man, I edited the episode. <laughs> like, leave me alone. <laughs> um, but you know what I've really noticed on this podcast is that up top, you know what we're pretty good at? Talking about movies. You know what we're t bad at? Talking about anything else. <laughs> so let's get into it. Um, the first two questions I always ask every guest, Justin, is what is your favorite genre of cinema as you know, on this podcast, you're a big uh, fan of it, and I know you listen to all the episodes. And what makes for a good of that genre? So what's your favorite genre of cinema? Um, that's tough. I, um, I, I think I have like a, a contentious relationship with genre films. I don't love most of them. But if I, if I was forced to pick a genre, I would probably be between horror and westerns. But I'm sure our, our dear friend Ian Hawk already said horror, so I'll say Western, just to be uh, the contrarian here. Oh, I mean, we're, we're allowed to have uh, favorites of the same life. No, we're not. We're not. We're not. <laughs> well, what, what to you makes... What to, I mean, Westerns are on the wheel for sure, and we will definitely get to Westerns is when I think we'll have you back. I'm going to take over for that one. I'm going to let you sit that one out. I'll, just, I'll be there for that season. <laughs> I would love it. I would absolutely love it. 
I mean, let's be honest. So the person who would be getting kicked out would be old Adam over here. <laughs> Help. <laughs> That's Adam's catchphrase, by the way. Help. <laughs> uh, Justin, what makes for a good Western? Um, I think I personally kind of really like the revisionist, like anti-Westerns. Um, those are my personal favorites. I think my favorite within the Western genre is I, I really like the revisionist anti-Westerns. Uh, my personal favorite being McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which I've seen like 25 times. It was also the last screening I went to in the real world, pre-P word. Uh, you were actually there, if you remember, at the New Beverly. Um, but I, I like a lot of them, you know, I like, uh, I do like the classic ones, like the John Ford ones. I, they're like a little like pure and romanticized, I think, which can be fun sometimes. Um, but I, I also really like, uh, the more modern ones where it's, it's like, uh, you know, more of like the sixties ones, like the misfits or like the lusty men, um, a little more bleak, a little sadder, you know? Yeah, we love a, like a sad Western, an emo Western. Oh, can we coin that? I like that. I feel like oh, some Jarmouche uh, kind of did that a little bit with Dead Man, but that's more of an acid Western, I suppose. That's that's yeah. more like a hot topic Western. I want to see some cowboys cry. Adam, have you seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller? I started watching it years ago, and I know I would like it, but I think the, the whole ultimate audio thing was throwing me off at the time. If you're not into it, I guess you're not into it. Yeah, we saw it at the New Beverly on a double bill with um, uh, Johnston. Oh my God, Jeremiah Johnson. Yes, Jeremiah Johnson, which was mm-hmm. such a great B feature to it. But that was the best double feature I've been to at the at the, at the Frida. Frida. No, Whoa, no, you uh, can't plug your own theater like that. Wow, I think I actually have gone a couple episodes without mentioning the Frida. But no, yeah, definitely the best double I've been to at the New Bev. Uh, thematically, went went together really, really well, and uh, honestly, a good way to go out uh, in the P word. So, Justin, what's your history with Revenge on film? Uh, of course, as you know, we spun the wheel for our very first series. It landed on Revenge. Do you have any favorites of the Revenge genre? Um, honestly, when you told me to pick one, I totally blanked. I couldn't think of a single one. And then I kind of I, I like went through like a long list, like trying to find one that was like an interesting pick that would be fun to talk about. I was like trying to find the balance between like being super pretentious and just like a boring podcast and like something super obvious, like a Kill Bill. Um, and then I gave you like six picks I was stoked on and you shot down all of them. And so we ended up on Point Blank. And I mean, it's a good pick. It's not going to save this from being a boring podcast. I do appreciate you trying that. But uh, let, let's get into it. We like to talk about movies here. So of course, let's discuss it. This is uh, Point Blank from 1967, which is actually streaming on Amazon Prime, not for free, but for $1.99. So not too bad, eh, Adam? Yeah, and thank you for lending me your account, Trevor. Yes, Adam uh, watches the movies on my account, and I will say, uh, I haven't brought this up on the show yet, but every time I go to Amazon Prime, I notice that you have left a fun, fun movie for me in my Watch Next category. Mm -hmm. So my Watch Next category now on Amazon Prime is four Medea movies. And then the new one you added was like, what's it? What was it called? Like the Wicked Whites of West Virginia? <laughs> Wait a minute! Wait a minute! I saw that. I didn't add that. I thought that you were making a joke on my joke. Bullshit! You added that. There's no I way. I promise. I did not add that on your account. So who else has been using my account then? Uh, Adriana did, right? Oh, that's good. That's good. That's very, very good. <laughs> So yeah, it's four Medea movies and then like some, it was called like the Wonderful Whites of West Virginia bullshit or something. Yeah. 
but a very, very good gag. So, yeah, like I said, this is 1967's uh, Point Blank, directed by John Borman. Uh, it's about after being double-crossed and left for dead, a mysterious man named Walker single-handedly tries to retrieve the rather inconsequential sum of money that was stolen from him. <laughs> It's a really weird way to say that movie, the rather inconsequential. I, I love it. it. It's like a talking point throughout the movie. They're like, you're you're killing all these people for $93,000? Really? They they really should have gone for it and made it only like $15. Yeah, right. Because I, I think I read that like updated for inflation, that's like $600,000. Like that's not yeah. an inconsequential amount of money. Dollars. I'm like, how is that inconsequential? It could change someone's life. You'd kill a few people for $600,000. With, before we get into the letterbox reviews, uh, I want to ask you, what is your history with this movie, Justin? And of course, I'll ask you as well, Adam, but why did you bring this movie onto the show? Um, I actually, I'd seen it one time, and it was a couple years ago, and I didn't remember much about it. I, I kind of panicked, and I was just going through like lists and lists of revenge movies, like trying to think of something that would be like just fun to talk about. And then I came across this. I went through like a hundred lists and I found this one and I was like, oh, duh. Like that's like, it's like such a like, it's interesting because it's kind of like by the numbers, like revenge, like it opens with him being betrayed in like the first 30 seconds. But it's, it's like a weird kind of take on it. Like it's almost like a satire a little bit. And it's, it's like very, you know, visual and interesting. And they do a lot of like crazy, like, you know, that late sixties kind of like easy rider, weird editing montage shit. And I, I thought it'd just be a fun watch. Yeah. I had no background. I'd never heard of this movie. So I appreciate you bringing it up, Justin. And, uh, it really had to grow on me, but you know what, Justin, Bo- what's the director's name? John, John Borman, more like John Funman. Uh, I dude, dude, I I didn't even write down a joke because I knew you'd get to it. Well, there you go. It's kind of like how Justin earlier in the in the show said that he was blanking on ideas for the show. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you as well for bringing this on because I had not seen it either. This was the first movie for the show that I had not seen. We're gonna get to the crow eventually. Uh, I haven't seen that one, but. Um, I really want to use this podcast as an excuse to watch new movies, although I have really, really enjoyed the rewatches, like The Handmaiden and Killing of a Sacred Deer and even Promising Young Woman, which I've seen twice now in my life already. It came out like a month ago. Um, I've really, really enjoyed rewatching some movies, but there's nothing like finding a new favorite. Uh, I won't say this is a new favorite of mine. We will get to my thoughts on it eventually. But let's start with what Letterboxd has to say about this movie. Justin, do you have a Letterboxd? I certainly do. Plug that. We'll get to plugs later, but plug that Letterboxd right up top. Uh, I don't remember what it is. Hold on. He was lying. I knew it. <laughs> it's sorry somehow. One word. Sorry somehow. Yeah, I need to. I need to retire that handle. But that's what it is. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I have a lot of people who have like such shitty handles on a uh, on Letterbox that they like literally won't say what they are. It's the title of a Husker Du song for anybody <laughs> who likes '80s alternative rock. Very nice. Uh, this movie has three point nine on Letterbox, which is extremely strong. As I say to everybody. Um, 3.0 to 3.5 is pretty good. 3.5 to 4 is very good. And then anything above 4 is like really, really great. So 3.9 is super strong. Um, so let's read a couple, a few reviews here. Uh, we have from li- listener, <laughs> listener, probably not a listener to this podcast, but I'm, I'm going to call him that. That's what we're going to do from now on, Adam. I'm going to be a listener. Yeah. I'm going to call anybody who leaves a review on Letterboxd about the movies are watching a listener. So this comes from listener MKR. Um, not I, why not MCR? Uh, incredible hard-boiled tour de force style a shame to say this was my first Borman 
guess I have to watch Exorcist 2 The Heretic now. <laughs> Probably shouldn't do that. Adam, have you... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Adam, have you watched another Borman film? Uh, have I watched another Borman film? <laughs> is what you're asking me right now. As Deliver- your eyes... Deliverance. <laughs> your yeah. eyes dart around the room. Uh, yeah, I have seen Deliverance. I knew he had another big one out there. Listener of the show, Evan Pincus, says, Modernist pulp, vengeful ghost story, metaphysical black comedy, or all of the above. Or maybe none of the above. Hmm. Yeah, it's hard to tell. <laughs> and um, a devoted listener of the show, Brody Britton, says, Pretty cool, but I felt like it was blatantly ripping off Drive from 2011. <laughs> Good point. I hadn't thought about that. Right. <laughs> oh, Lebber talks. Oh, is so goofy. All right, well, let's dive right into it, guys. What did we like about this movie? As always, I like to keep it positive. Uh, Adam is the one who likes to keep it negative. When he hosts the show, we can talk about what we don't like about movies. But <laughs> I'm going to start this right up tight. Right up tight. Well, there's a spoiler. This is a this is a tight, tight 92-minute movie. We love a shorty. When I saw that after having watched, like, The Handmaiden on all these long movies, I was like, yes. Like, I know we're going to get, like, a taut thriller here. And absolutely, this movie delivered on that. Uh, the running time, I mean. <laughs> but it, it, it really is a tight movie. Although it is kind of... Uh, it does get weirdly convoluted. Like you think that this is going to be a very like straightforward revenge movie, um, and we'll get to basically what it re- what it invented in terms of the wheels of revenge. But uh, I I, I want to say right up top something that I really really appreciated was the dude on the ferry towards the beginning of the movie when they're uh, by Alcatraz. Do you guys remember how slow this dude was talking? No. Yes. So, you do so adam so mostly in movies like this is not something that they invented but this character in most movies is giving intel and talking usually so fast like though this is the character who knows everything and is spilling it all to lee marvin who i haven't we haven't even said the name lee marvin yet but um i just loved how slowly he talked like what a decision it was to make that dude talk so slowly it was like what we talked about on uh, the Killing of a Sacred Deer episode about how Shyamalan will have characters whisper so you listen closer. Like, this was just like, I'm giving you a lot of exposition and I'm going to talk super slow while I do it. Yeah, here comes grumpy old Adam. I mean, that's the part in the movie where I was already kind of thinking, like, what's with these late uh, late 60 movies having these terrible audio tracks all the time? Like, you can tell they had to dub it over at the last second. And then this guy comes in and he's talking like a mannequin. Like, he didn't get any direction. I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> oh, so you've complained about the sound in McCabe and Mrs. Miller and now Point Blake right up top. Right. Although, to be fair, look, Altman won me over. I think Nashville's a masterpiece. And it oh, has the shit. Same now, 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 you've, now you've opened the Altman box. Yeah, uh, uh, Altman's my favorite director, probably. Nice. Okay. So. Yeah, don't get me started. That's a different podcast. <laughs> Altman was my most watched director. Damn, whatever Lever Talks said. So you claim, Mr. Billy Wilder. Yeah, Lever Talks said Billy Wilder was my most watched. But uh, 2020 for me, when I look back on it in terms of film, will be the year that I really uh, deep dove, deep dicked Altman's uh, filmography. The year of Altman. Yeah, uh, and it was yeah fantastic, and I'm, I can't wait till we get an Altman um, movie or two on here for sure. <laughs> Bring me back, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, um, so so I mean, yeah, that dude talked really slow, and I know that's a stupid note to write down, but it made me laugh right up top. And I was with you a little bit, Adam. I was like, why is does, did anyone give this dude direction? Like, why is he talking like this? Is this guy gonna be in the rest of the movie? Yeah, because he is in the rest of the movie, and he's talking like a normal, sane human being. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm glad you noticed that. Um, and just to kind of backtrack on Borman, of course, we, we have mentioned it kind of offshoot, but he directed Deliverance, might have been his next uh, movie after this. And then, of course, Excalibur from 1981 that a lot of people really like. He directed like the famously troubled and bomb movie Zardoz, and then he also made Exorcist 2. So the dude made a lot of studio movies. He has a style... He he followed. I think he followed this one up with another Lee Marvin movie called Hell in the Pacific. Have you ever seen that? No, no. no but after, after this movie, I probably should check that out. I haven't seen it, but I have owned the Blu-ray for like five years, and I pick it up all the time. And I think I have to watch it now. But it's it's Lee Marvin and um, oh my god, I'm blanking on the actress name. Oh, um, Marvin Lee. No, Shira Mafune. <laughs> It's it's uh, Lee Lee Marvin and Tashira Mifune. Basically, they get like stuck on an island in the Pacific. I think it's in World War II, mm-hmm. and not, like they don't speak each other's language. So they basically like I, apparently they like spend half the movie trying to kill each other, and then the other half of the movie trying to like help each other escape. But there's like no dialogue, mm-hmm. and that sounds incredible. And for no reason, I've never watched it. Interesting. Are we uh, are we all big Zardos heads here? <laughs> I, I've never seen it. Um, Same. I'm more of a Xanadu man myself. Oh, I love Xanadu. Well, Zardo- uh, Zardoz made has a big uh, cultural collection or connection now because uh, didn't uh, Rick and Morty parody uh, the movie with an episode? See, when you bring up Altman here, we might talk to you. But when you bring up Rick and Morty, I'm going to go ahead and check out. I'm sorry. You know what? I'll edit this whole part out. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, no. You better not, but that that would be something that you would edit out. The movie kind of opens like, I feel like a lot of movies try to slowly ease you into the world and kind of like hook you a little bit. And this movie just kind of from the beginning, just just like, you're not going to follow this, like give up. Uh, and I, I kind of dig it. It's like flipping between these like two two completely different scenes and you're like what the hell is happening Mm -hmm. and then like very quickly you're like oh they're double crossing him i'm not really sure what's going on okay oh he's shot okay he's dead okay no what's going on and then he's like on the boat and then there's that whole thing but it like introduces you to this like weird kind of dreamy voiceover Mm -hmm. that i really really dig and i Mm -hmm. dug it more after like reading the whole theory about him like either being in a state of dying and like dreaming all of this or like he's already dead and he's like a ghost and he's just like you know the, the like the reverb the reverb like ethereal voiceover intro as he's like kind of dying there it's like is very interesting yeah i really liked that too i mean it grew on me i didn't like it at the beginning because I, I don't know how i feel about these american movies at this time especially when they're like trying to pick up on french new wave stuff um but yeah, it, it, I was really considering, oh, did this guy die? Is that like, is this some big ex- existential question that the movie's trying to ask me? And it was cool to, to ponder that. Yeah. And, and that's, I was reading that like, a lot of the thoughts are like, that's why he doesn't take the money at the end because he, mm. he's a ghost and he doesn't care. Mm. Like it's, it doesn't even, like he spends the whole movie trying to get this money and then he finally gets it and he just like walks away from it. I'm glad that you brought up the beginning of the movie because it, it was immediately like, I was like, oh, I'm kind of sort of confused. I didn't expect to be confused. And it's funny how you bring up the French New Wave stuff. It did feel very weirdly Verite. And like, I don't, I mean, I'm using Verite very, very liberally, but it just felt very like, I was like, oh, Borman's like really opening up this movie with some serious decision making. And then we don't really get that much of that in the rest of the movie. But we do have like the weird dreamy sense the whole time. That's actually a really good theory. I don't know where you read that, um, but I, I really 
I really like that theory, and it kind of so, makes the movie make a little more sense. David Thompson was the one that I read, the like the probably the most famous film critic of all time. That was kind of his take on the movie. But then I apparently like the commentary of this movie. It's it's uh, Steven Soderbergh and John Borman together. Like I guess they're sitting and watching it, and Soderbergh like asks asks him about it at one point, and he just kind of gives like a very vague like it is what it is whatever you want it to be kind of bullshit director answer. (laughs) Yeah, I I, uh, saw that Soderbergh uh, is just always quoted as being like, yeah, I mean my my career is just point blank, and I just steal mostly from point blank. (laughs) Um, but we'll, I mean, I guess we'll talk about basically, I and mean, we gotta just go all over the place in this, but I want to, I want to mention that it was interesting. You said that, uh, Lee Marvin and John Borman made another movie right after this because the, the relationship, uh, according to the quote unquote research that I did between them seemed very interesting because Marvin, uh, Lee Marvin picked Borman for this movie. And then, uh, Borman is stated as saying, basically Marvin had a ton of input in terms of how the movie was shot and all that. And he basically, Marvin doesn't take notes. He just does it you know what i mean i'm sorry i'm sorry he doesn't not that he doesn't take notes but he doesn't make suggestions he'll just go and do a scene and that's his suggestion the way he did the scene is his suggestion yeah it's interesting um i i believe this was right after lee marvin did cat blue and i think he won the oscar for that which mm-hmm. i don't know if you guys have you guys seen cat blue no. no, but I, I, that that will be a movie that because for every series we get we get a pick. Uh, Adam and I get a pick each, and that'll be one of the westerns that I pick when we get there. Incredibly fun western, so good, one of my favorites. Um, but I think he just won the Oscar for that, so he kind of had some heat. And I think he it, it was like in this like star power phase. So he I think he like I don't know if he read the book because I think it's loosely based on a book, or if he read the screenplay or something. But he basically went to Borman and was like, I want to make this movie with you. This script is trash. We have to throw it out the window and like start over entirely and make our own thing. And I guess Borman was just like, okay, sure. Yeah, that's interesting to hear because I feel like this movie has a lot of confidence in it. I don't know how. I was thinking, how did they like put all of this together? It had to have had like a singular strong vision. But it sounds like it was, I don't know, two guys' vision. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, if you win an Oscar and you come off of that and you have some heat and you can basically... I mean, if Borman's coming off of one movie, and and I know you had mentioned... So what was the name of the critic that you mentioned earlier? Uh, David Thompson. Uh, if, David. if you've ever heard of, like, the, I think he, he was uh, Bordwell and Thompson, the, the film art book. It's, like, one of the most famous film theory books of all time. Is uh, Yeah, David Thompson. I haven't read any of his work, but obviously I had read again in my research that uh, Having a Wild Weekend, Borman's first film, just made two years before that, was praised big time by Pauline Kael. Uh, and that basically is what Borman points to as being like, that review that Pauline Kael gave me gave me a career, which then led to uh, basically Lee Marvin picking me. And I, I always have this fascination with like ghost directors, basically directors that get brought onto a project. Uh, Adam, I think we may have talked about, not off the pod, but... um. Basically, like there are directors that exist throughout the history of Hollywood who just get brought onto projects so that the lead actors can basically direct the projects. It doesn't seem like Borman is that throughout his entire career, but I feel like that may have been the case here. It's like he makes a movie. The only reason he becomes a name is because one, uh, you know, famous New York Times film critic writes about it, and then Lee Marvin picks you sort of almost out of obscurity to basically make his own movie coming off of an Oscar. So we're really putting this movie in context. We don't usually put give the movies this. This much context but i'm feeling very strongly about this one mm-hmm. 
It's, but, yeah, when you when you frame it that way, that's that's definitely what it sounds like. I hadn't even considered that. Um, but then Borman, obviously, I think he breaks out of that. But but I don't I don't know though, because then you move to like something like big like Deliverance, and it's like, you know, did someone else did 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 Burt Reynolds direct this movie? You know. But uh, Burt Reynolds is there even no... really a Burman, a Borman around here? God. Let me take that joke again. <laughs> Go ahead. Is there even really a Borman? <laughs> I love it. It's like a, it's like a mystery movie where everyone's like, "We're looking for Borman." Yeah, it's, it's like, like an Alan of... Smithy type deal. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah. Uh, it's funny because he could have Alan Smithy. Ex- Exorcist 2 and Zardoz probably <laughs> like okay we're on to something here I know we might just not even talk about the scenes we liked in this movie and just go down the rabbit hole with some conspiracy theories Soderbergh just doing a uh, doing a commentary talking to himself he's famous <laughs> for that shit Soderbergh is famous for like writing a script from a movie and like putting it underneath someone else's, else's name and I know that's like that's WGA shit but he, he also edits and DPs I think under fake names because he like basically does everything on his movies I, I think that this is the most conspiracy we've got on the show, but I love the idea that John Borman doesn't exist. No disrespect to John Borman. Uh, and that Soderbergh is sitting doing a commentary and talking to himself on two separate tracks. It's just super funny to me to imagine because that's something that Soderbergh would do. I hate that Zeeshan didn't get the conspiracy episode. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm offended for him. Who would have thought that this like fairly straightforward revenge movie would be the conspiracy episode? <laughs> Uh, but let's talk about what what did we like what what scenes did we like I, I was telling Justin uh, via text uh, that by the time we got to the sniper scene at the L A River which of course the L A River is in this movie um, I, that's when I was like this movie is like cooking when like two people get shot and one of them is Lee Marvin you're like oh damn like the the movie had stakes but I, that was a scene was great there was a shot from over the shoulder of the sniper looking down onto the L A River that I loved I love that scene. Uh... Definitely one of the standouts, like one of the four or five standouts for me. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of great because it's it's one of those situations where it's like Walker's kind of figured out what's going on. But I, I I mean I don't know I can't speak for you guys, but I hadn't really kind of been like I hadn't really figured out exactly what was at foot until the guy starts running out and screaming and waving his hands like don't shoot don't shoot and then the guy shoots him and then like Lee Marvin just like looks at him like yep knew that was gonna happen. And then you just watch the guy walk away and he's like walks over and pulls out all this paper and like throws it. Yeah. I also didn't know. And I mean, this scene was the one that got me hooked. I loved it. Just the framing of everything, the LA river and cutting back to the sniper. I, I really enjoyed that. You want to know a shot that I hated in this movie? I don't want to (laughs) fall into the stereotype that uh, Trevor created for me, but I mean, you're, you're, yeah, hey man, there's a reason why that stereotype exists. It better not be my favorite shot, though. I gotta say. Okay, here we go. It's it's pretty early on when I was still like trying to get into the movie, and um, for oh, some no. reason, uh, Lee Marvin runs into the uh, into uh, that apartment to try to kill his old buddy, and he goes into the bathroom, and then he starts shoving all the like perfume bottles off for no effing reason. I can't find a reason for why he did that. Do you guys know? There was some like highfalutin director answer I think I saw uh, mm-hmm. somewhere on the internet, but it no, I just thought it looked kind of cool. I don't really think there was like a like a real message behind it, but I think they said something like, "Trevor, did you write it down what they said?" 
No, no, but it's funny that we did the same amount of research, and I refuse to say that I go to IMDb to do research, so a new bit I'm going to start on the show is that I'm going to be like, we need to think of one, Adam, where I'm like, instead of saying, oh, I saw an IMDb, what I'm going to start saying is like, I, I was at the gym, like, I was, I was at the gym doing curls, and the dude behind me said that Soderbergh said, and I, I'm, I'm just going to act like that's what I'm doing instead of just trolling on IMDb. Yeah, I like that. I like, you know, throw out your dentist, throw out like you went skydiving and your instructor said things like that. But I want it to be something that makes me sound cool. So it's like something like I was I was at the I was uh, I was helping out uh, at, the, at a soup kitchen for the homeless and what I heard. And, uh, and I want to like I want me to sound good. But also I heard some movie trivia. Right. Yeah. You were saving some orphans and one of the orphans told you. Great. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about it off the show, but uh, I can't continue saying, but I, I don't know what he said about that scene. Although I do love that scene, how he rolls into that house and just unloads a clip into the bed without realizing there's no one in it. I, and then I love that they come back to it later in slow motion and it's like kind of different. Like right. it's, he's like, they shot it different. He's like acting it very differently. There's like a recoil of a gun. It's, he like, it's very interesting. I love how he rolls into any place. Like when he goes to uh, find the CEO or whatever of that one place and he tricks the girl or forces the girl to open up the door. And then as soon as it opens, he like knows where to go to get the other guy. I love that speed. Um, but wait, let me let me get back to this shot that I hated. So the, the specifically all of these these like perfumes and oils and stuff fall into the tub. And then at one point, the camera just looks into the tub and it zooms into all the like crazy colors mixing, and I'm like, okay, yeah, it's so crazy this life that he's living. I I mean I didn't really yeah it's it's kind of a shot that I you know it's it's more just like a visual gag like mm-hmm. I was like oh cool and then I just kind of like wrote it off because I think the, the I feel like it's like a visual representation of what the movie's trying to be just like this chaotic like Hollywood new wave mix of just kind of like energy and like seventies like aesthetic you know what mm. i mean just like yeah no, i agree with you completely but it felt so ham-fisted like look how crazy this movie is look at these colors it, it's it's the hardest scene i think to digest and mm. i just kind of immediately deleted it from my brain as it as it happened and that's the same scene where he sits down on the, on the couch with uh the lady and there's two of them in the frame and then she just does all the talking is mm. that the, is that the same scene that happens right after, and I think yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I was really questioning if this woman was a good actress or not. Lynn? Was it his wife? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was very, like, uh, a mannequin. What what I saw on uh, what I was I was uh, I was at church the other day, and the the preacher was saying that in that scene, uh, Lee Marvin was supposed to have lines, like he was supposed to ask her questions, and then like I mentioned earlier. Um, Lee Marvin just didn't talk during the first take, and so the actress didn't know what to do. So then John Borman was like, oh, I get it, I get it. You go ahead and just ask yourself the questions, and he'll just sit there. And it kind of plays pretty good. You just stay in that two-shot the whole time, and Lee Marvin is just spaced out. And it's just really funny that he would not tell John Borman what he would do in a scene, and then he would just do it. And then Borman would be like, okay, I guess that's what we're that's the blocking and what we're doing in this scene. <laughs> Yeah, I like the idea of Lee Marvin, like, maybe just being strung out on drugs the whole time, and Borman's like, oh, no, yeah, 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 that totally makes sense. Like, we go we go around it this way. Yeah, it's like that when um, PTA holds on Wahlberg and Boogie Nights when he's all spaced out, and, like, he holds on him for, like, you know, 50 seconds or whatever, and everyone was like, 
oh my god, like Paul Thomas Anderson can really just capture a moment, can't he? And the truth is, like Mark Wahlberg, like forgot his line or some shit, which was like just looking off, and Paul Thomas Anderson just like didn't cut the camera. I just got lucky and caught this really awesome moment. Yeah, Lee Marvin walks off set to go to eat some craft services stuff, and Borman's like, oh yeah, that's right, we got to include all these food scenes. I forgot. That's brilliant. <laughs> Uh, I feel like it kind of works though, right? Because it's like he's he's coming home to his wife who just betrayed him, and she's just like trying to defend herself verbally, like, "Oh, this is why, you know, like I regret it. Like I thought I wanted him, but I don't. I wanted you." And he's just like staring at her, like, "What do you want me to say?" Like, you know. Yeah. I totally agree that it, it does work. That's why it's so funny to me. And I, and this is the type of filmmaking that I'm very envious of because if you had asked me what I thought this movie would be, but like I would be like. You know, Point Blank is an early Sidney Lumet movie. It's probably very tight and well done. It's just probably minor in his canon or whatever. And then I watch it, and like we're talking about, it, it's like this weird mix of new Hollywood and new way. Like it like has a lot of weird artistry to it, and make makes me want to go back and watch a few of Borman's movies to see like mm. like what this dude's really got under his sleeve. Because I remember watching Deliverance and it being like upsetting. I don't know what genre that will fall into <laughs> that we have on the wheel, but I would love to watch that movie again. Yeah, I think um, surprise artistry is a is a nice way to put it. And that's what I was feeling. And also, I want to say that this movie probably has like my favorite um, portrait of Los Angeles. I, I love the way that it was shot here. And I love that it was kind of like not making a big deal, you know? That's yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's, I, I was a little interested to be like, where, wait, where is this movie taking place? Because it's so clearly Alcatraz, mm-hmm. uh, and then we start somewhere, and then all of a sudden we're in LA. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I looked away from this, the TV for a second, but I will say, from the movies that we watch on this podcast, I put my phone in the other room because I'm a hero. Thank you. I do yeah. want to say I was gonna pick uh, to live and die in LA, and Trevor vetoed it pretty hard. So this was as close as this was as close as I could get. It, it, it is a great alternative, and also the only reason I vetoed it is because that movie's just not available to watch. Like, I have it on Blu-ray, but I, like, I, I could give the Blu-ray to Adam, but if anybody were to ever listen to this podcast, and I really hope someone does eventually listen to this podcast, um, they wouldn't be able to watch it with us. So it was just kind of like, why would we do that? <laughs> I, I texted Trevor, like, so excited. It was, like, midnight, and I was like, oh, my God, I figured it out. It's to live and die in LA. I think I said it in all caps, and he just said, oh. And I was like, okay, never mind. Fine, then. Point blank. I mean, I, I'm a, I love Friedkin, so I can't wait to get into some Friedkin stuff. But it just, it, you know, it, it, some of his movies are kind of hard to find. Speaking of The Exorcist. I think this is a less discussed uh, movie that kind of deserves some discussion. So I'm, I'm glad we ended up on it. Yeah, I love some Friedkin Borman. Mm, there we go. That's, that was much better, Adam. Um, we're kind of just lightly touching on this, and I feel like maybe that's what this movie should... I think maybe if someone has listened to this podcast and hasn't seen Point Blank, we haven't really spoiled much for them. Um, go watch Point Blank. We've been pretty high on it so far. Uh, is yeah. there anything else we liked? Otherwise, we're going to move on to rating this movie, but what else did we like? I liked... Um, there's a handful of scenes I really dug. I loved the the car scene where he like takes it out on a test drive and like he, it's, it's literally like death-proof rip that shit off. Like He's like you know, like driving the car and smashing it to like threaten the the salesman dude. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that scene was really cool. Did you? Well, when's the last time y'all see, have seen a True Lies? Never. Okay, so Cameron made this movie called True Lies, which came right after uh, Terminator Two, and it was you know it was in the in the stage where every time Cameron made a movie, it was the most expensive movie ever made. So it was like Terminator Two, most expensive movie ever made. True Lies, most expensive movie ever made. Titanic, of course, and then Avatar. Um, and there's uh, Bill Paxton is in that movie, and if you want to YouTube Bill Paxton's 
performance as the car salesman in that movie it is fantastic he's so great so you guys aren't going to get this reference at all but it really that scene reminded me of bill paxton just a scumbag that that gets taken out by arnold on this test drive and he's in like big big trouble i i loved that scene it was very very satisfying Oh, I was going to say, I also like the setup to that scene where uh, that guy's being really creepy with the female customer. It's exactly why it reminded me of Bill Paxton, because it's all Bill Paxton talks about with Arnold on, on their test drive. So, yeah, no, great pick for it. I mean, it fit the movie in the way that it was it was it was goofier than the rest of the stuff. But it was also pretty hard hitting, like he was smashing the car. It was obviously all practical. And then the dude gets out and he has this big old raspberry on his forehead. Uh, it's it's interesting because this is a movie. I think whenever I like originally watched it, it was because this is kind of one of those. It, it's like a movie you hear directors talk about a lot and filmmakers uh, just like worshiping it and loving it. Like I've heard about it so many times, but you don't hear it very often in like regular conversation. And I, you know, you can kind of watch it and just see, you know, other filmmakers lifting scenes from it or like lifting style from it. Yeah, I saw that um, Borman said the most ripped part of the movie is when uh, you saw this. My favorite shot, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. The the one where they like are they're fighting and they fall on the floor and then they like roll over and it's like match cutting between different people having sex. Yep, that's it. Yeah, he he, he said that that's the most lifted thing from the movie. Yeah, he was like, he I think it was yeah in the commentary he he was like, uh, this is a scene that a lot of people steal and then Soderbergh was like, yeah, I've stolen it. <laughs> yeah, I mean like whatever. <laughs> That's cool, man. Even if, you, even if, as a young director, if there's even one thing you put in a, in a movie that like is a straight up becomes like a trope going forward, and not even a trope of the revenge genre, just like a trope in movies going forward, that's pretty rad. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like your fingerprints. You know, your arms are like long reaching. Like fifty years later, you're 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 still putting your fingerprint on some movies, even if people don't know it's yours. What, what did you guys think of the casting? Well, I have I haven't seen Lee Marvin in a ton of movies. Adam, do you have any Lee Marvin background? No, I had to look him up. I guess his biggest thing is probably, what, The Dirty Dozen, right? The Dirty Dozen's one of them. Like, a Capaloo, he won the Oscar for. Mm. He's kind of one of those, like, character actors that did a lot of westerns and stuff. Right. But he's in Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. He's in The Professionals. He's great in that. He's obviously great in Dirty Dozen. Have you, have you guys heard of uh, The Sons of Lee Marvin? Are you familiar with that? No. This is a, it's like a, it's kind of like a joke fan club that Jim Jarmusch started. Okay. <laughs> And it's uh, the official members. It's secret, so they don't tell you who's in it. But officially, the members are Jim Jarmusch, Tom Waits, Nick Cave, and I think John Lurie. And then alleged members are Neil Young, Josh Brolin, (laughs) Thurston Moore from Sonic Youth, and Iggy Pop. And it's essentially just like this joke fan club that they've been talking about since the 80s in interviews that they just bring up all the time. And uh, there, people like always ask them about it, and they're like, "Oh, we can't tell you what we do, but basically, we get together and we watch Lee Marvin movies." And it's extra funny because apparently, at some point in the '90s, like some dude cornered uh, Tom Waits in a bar and was like, "Oh, I, I hear you guys are doing this Sons of Lee Marvin Club," and he was like, "Yeah, what about it?" He's like, "I am Lee Marvin's son, and I don't like it." And it was like this Whoa. big funny thing, but I, I always thought that was hilarious. Um, I'm a huge Lee Marvin fan. I think him and like Robert Mitchum are kind of in my head is like doing, filling that same kind of role. Mm -hmm. It's like that kind of gritty, rough actor, just like, I don't know, in like Westerns, but like also kind of in classics, just, I don't know. I I have so much adoration for Lee Marvin. 
I see Charles Bronson as kind of a Lee Marvin as well. Yeah, I see a Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> Leslie Nielsen is kind of what I was thinking through the entirety of Point Blank. Right. <laughs> um, what about Angie Dickinson? Angie Dickinson was really good. I, I I will say with Lee Marvin, I love the man who shot at Liberty Valance. He has a small role in the Big Heat, which I watched this year when I was on my big Criterion vendor. Um, Point Blank is his third most popular movie on Letterboxd. And then I haven't seen Bad Day at Black Rock. The Dirty Dozen, obviously, is the Dirty Dozen. But uh, he's in the Kane, uh, the Kane Mutiny, uh, which uh, are you a fan of that movie, Justin? Have you seen it? I own it. I've never watched it. Um, unfortunately, I, I, I wasn't sure because I, I have a buddy who has a 35 millimeter print of that movie. That's like perfectly restored. And he's like, I want to play the Kane mutiny. And I'm like, dude, let's do it. Like, that sounds awesome. I've never seen it, but that would be like the perfect way to watch that movie. Yeah. Super down. I'll throw out my Blu-ray. Uh, let, let, so as far as what I'm familiar with Angie Dickinson in, uh, there's obviously, um, Rio Bravo, uh, which I know you're a big fan of, um, and then uh, Dressed to Kill, I mean, uh, Problematic King, Brian De Palma, I, I've, I've always liked her in that. And I, that's basically it for me. I can't really think, uh, if I pulled it up, I'm sure she has bit parts in movies that I like. But uh, Point Blank, Rio Bravo, and Dressed to Kill is a pretty great top three to have. Yeah, she kind of steals the show in Rio Bravo, in my opinion, which is crazy because of the star power in that movie. But uh, I've seen that movie like 10 times, love her in that. She also did another movie with Lee Marvin before this. Uh, Don Siegel's version of the killers and I think apparently they like hated each other on set so the entire time that they were shooting point blank they just like wanted to strangle each other weird because I mean it's also interesting if if Lee Marvin was actually backseat directing this movie it was it's interesting that they like cast her you know oh I, I that was purely a theory <laughs> I, but I know but I think it I think it holds some water I think there's I think there's something to that I'm fascinated and stuff like that uh Adam um have you seen Rio Bravo Pilgrim? I, it's another one that I started because, you know, there's that famous tale that uh, Tarantino went on a date. He would show the girl Rio Bravo, and if they didn't like it, he would break up with them. <laughs> um, oh, my God. So I started watching it, and I was actually pretty into it. But then I was like, I have a friend who also likes Westerns. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get him in on this watch with me. Um, and then it never happened, so... It's probably not good to go on a tangent this late in the show, but I uh, was up all night one night during pandemic. It was the only night that I, it was basically like a night where at 6 a.m. I started like Arcade Fire's Lollapalooza performance from 2019. It was just one of those nights. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched the, the Roast of Dean Martin, uh, which is fascinating. You should watch it on um, YouTube. It has the star power there is like insane. Like the last build person there is like John Wayne. It's like everyone is so like Jimmy Stewart's there. Muhammad Ali is there. It's crazy. Don Rickles. And uh, Don Rickles is the, is the roast master. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was just really funny to watch John Wayne get up there and try to be funny. <laughs> it was, <laughs> he was the just best. racist thing. the whole time. <laughs> yeah, no, no. He, he actually, I was really bracing myself for how problematic it would be, and it was. I mean, compared to like how like you know the stuff is nowadays, it was fairly tame. Uh, and yeah, like the, this the style of comedy in like the early seventies is just so funny to me. Mm. Uh, but anyways, that that was fully a tangent. Uh, Angie Dickinson was really really good in this movie, um, mm. and of course uh, Rio Bravo is great. Check that out, and then. Uh, we always push De Palma on the show, Adam. I'll, I'll never ask your opinion on De Palma, but uh, any chance you get to watch a De Palma movie, take it. You better not ask me. <laughs> uh, anything else, guys, before we move on to rating it? I, there was a couple lines I thought were cool. Um, when she says, hey, what's my last name? 
and he said well, what's my first name and they just like stare at each other and yeah. walk away i thought that was a great moment yeah um i'll throw in a, i'll toss my hat in here and say uh, i like that um you did die at alcatraz yeah 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 oh yeah you let him fall you should have killed him you did you you died in alcatraz all right yeah yeah that was great because i mean that has so many layers to it it added to me thinking about it all these great quotes in this movie and we chose to read a point blank quote before the episode (laughs) um by the way uh i loved that scene of the naked man falling off the building that was some yes great green screen for back in the day and then how he just hold he Go ahead, sorry. He ended up halfway under the car, which was especially impressive. I just like how he stood there and just held the towel. (laughs) It's a a movie of... You know, that's what I was expecting was like a movie of details. And it's it's not really. It kind of just swathed over me, and there was a lot of stuff I really liked scene to scene. But uh, like I said, I was I was expecting this very exacting thing, and what I got was a sloppy revenge movie, which is like a, a genre unto itself. I really I really really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else to wrap this up? Um, I want to shout out the DP Phil Lathrop, uh, most famous for shooting one of my favorite movies of all time. They shoot horses, don't they? Thought he did a, cool. did a great job on this. A lot of beautiful anamorphic frames and zooms and all that late 60s early 70s goodness absolutely yeah man when a movie opens up with that columbia logo you're just like oh yes wait no wait no it wasn't columbia i'm sorry it was mgm the the old red and black lion logo yeah i mean i loved my favorite thing was looking at this movie it was beautiful and that ain't too shabby that ain't too shabby if you can get 92 minutes of looking at something that you think is beautiful right and tell my ex-wife that all right, well, let's rate this some bitch. Uh, we're moving on. Uh, we're moving on. Well, I'm sure we'll get to, to some more discussion. But uh, Justin, if you don't know, which of course you do, because you're a listener of this great show, we have five categories that we did in our intro to revenge episode that we thought would make for a good revenge movie, or at the very most, the most tropey revenge movie. We rate it on a scale from one to ten. So you'll go first. You'll rate it, and then uh, Adam and I will clean it up. So category number one. How fucked over is the good guy, Lee Marvin, at the beginning of this story? <laughs> One through ten. Ten. All right. All right. So we finally got a movie that was like tropey enough to really nail this trope. Yeah. When when that because I didn't remember the opening scene. And when that happened, I was like, oh, I picked a good one. Okay, we're good. We're off to a good start. I'm going to give it a three. He lost like $12 and his wife just <laughs> fell in love with someone else. Not too bad. Oh, Adam, come on. What does a 10 look like to you? Uh, uh, we gave out a bunch of 10s on an episode recently. Um, right. But uh, wait, for real, you're giving it a 3? Yeah, a kill build might be a 10. Yeah, kill build's pretty bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. left, left, left that left for dead. I mean, this is, this, is, this is the genre. This is the category. I mean, he gets shot. He loses his cut of the $93,000, uh, which uh, somebody was calling an inconsequential amount of money for some reason. Uh, and then uh, obviously he loses his wife. It's pretty bad, Adam. I'm, I'm giving it an eight. It's a, it's, it's pretty like being left for dead, losing your wife and losing your cut of something you worked hard to get. is pretty bad. Yeah, uh, what else can you lose? I'm so curious. You could lose your son or daughter. I, yeah, I guess you, a lot of revenge movies are based on the idea that they have had like an, a loved one taken from them. So, Adam, I, you're just saying that you prefer that style. Well, because his wife, what? I guess I'm a little confused. He ended up killing his wife, right? 
she killed herself she took a bunch of sleeping pills yeah right but that was after she went to go vi- he went to go visit her right exactly so he like i mean she was still alive she just was hanging with another dude if he was polyamorous it wouldn't have been as bad it was like they both betrayed him sort of yeah i guess the left for dead thing would bump it up but i gotta stick with the three <laughs> all right still a pretty strong 10 3 8 right uh Plus, category number wait, two hold on well, he was also well, a yeah. he was able to swim from alcatraz back to mainland so he wasn't like that hurt but we don't know if that's real or not he could be dead that's also true that's true okay within the fiction i might even rate it higher um within that like existential idea but i'm gonna stick, stick to your three yeah. stick to your three yeah category no- number two are the stakes justified for this revenge I mean, as far as they want us to believe within the world, it's no. But I think, you know, we've, we've discussed $600,000 adjusted for inflation is and, and losing your wife. I, I feel it's like a five, six, maybe. I'll go six. I'm also going to give it a six for all the reasons that you said, but also they tried to kill him. So, like, that's pretty bad. Uh, so I would say the stakes are justified just over the halfway mark. So six from me. Adam? Uh, I'll give it a one. Wow. I really like that in the in the world of this movie, people are like, "What? What's your problem, dude? It's not that much money." <laughs> yes. So you're you're siding with the characters in the movie. Yeah, it's hilarious. I think. <laughs> okay, category number three. How good is the conversation before the storm? And by that, I mean the trope where someone tries to talk Lee Marvin out of the revenge that he is seeking. Usually in a movie, usually in a movie, there's like a full scene where like a character will sit someone down. We've seen it a lot in this series, so it does exist. It's it's interesting because I feel like the whole movie, Angie Dickinson's character is basically telling him like he's not going hard enough. Um, so I don't know, a one, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 this is not really a trope that presents itself too much in this movie. Although you could argue that uh, people saying like dude like it's not even that much money like what are you doing that's them trying to be like talking him out of it a little bit but still i'm gonna i'm gonna stay pretty low here i'm gonna go with a three yeah i love the guy who's literally just like we don't even carry cash like what what year do you think it is like what uh yeah i'm gonna go with a three also (laughs) no no explanation needed you guys Uh, category yeah category number four how strong is the closure at the end of the story oh that's uh that's interesting. I'm going to give it a 10 because he got what he wanted and then he just walked away from it. Like He, he seems fully satisfied. That's a really, really good argument for that, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I'm going to give it a zero. zero? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't know what ghost Lee Marvin was up to. Um, I'm gonna give it an eight. Uh, I, I think I think it's a pretty strong close to the story. I, I think it's a really really strong choice for Hat to have him walk away. I really like. Oh, that. I loved that ending. But you're giving it a zero. Yeah, in terms of closure. But that was his. Cl- he chose the closure he got. Or did he? He chose to walk away. That's him choosing. The I don't. I don't think he did because he just sinks into the shadows. So we we he walks into the shadows. I don't know. Category category five. How cool slash clever are the weapons used for revenge in this film? There's a there's a car. He uses a car. Yeah, that scene I would give like a seven, but the rest of the movie it's sort of just guns. I don't know a one. A one? But clever is a gun clever? Oh no, but how cool slash clever? I mean, I mean, I get. I guess you'd have to you'd have to admit that you think guns are cool. Yeah. No. <laughs> um. 
I, I mean, the the guy like falling out of the towel off the balcony <laughs> was pretty damn funny. I'll give it a five just for the towel and the car. Okay, five. I'm also giving it a five uh, for the guns, towel, and the car. I'll give it a seven because I uh, God that sniper was pretty sweet. I like the blanket he wrapped it in. I, I need to find one of those. Yeah, see or something. That guy's a a whole professional. He even had something like on the top of his car antenna, which I assume was like to prevent tracking or whatever. And bonus rounds, uh, one through ten. How cool was the final showdown location? Ten, dude. It's Alcatraz, right? Uh, Adam, I'm gonna go with a ten here as well. That's a pretty sweet. I, I mean, and the way it's set up in the beginning, it pays off really well. I'm going with a ten here. Ten. Wow. Is this the first category ever on the show? We've gone ten, ten, ten. I think so. Yeah, and that's a big one too because the bonus category is weighted really heavy for us. Mm-hmm. So, um, how are you feeling about your uh, your odds here, Justin? While I add everything up, um, you've actually been telling me the numbers as you've been scoring all of them, and I've ignored all of them. So I have no idea. I don't know. Somewhere in the middle, probably. Okay. Uh, so it looks as if you have given the film a forty-two out of fifty, technically, because of the bonus category. Uh, Adam has given it a failing grade of 24 out of 50. (laughs) And I have given it a 40 out of 50. Adding those up very quickly. 40 plus 42 is 82 plus 24 is 106. So this film has a 106. Now, I can't tell you if 106 is good because then I'd be giving away this course of the other episodes. But I can tell you that... This is going to be certainly on the lower end of this series. Which is wild, because I feel like it's a pretty paint-by-numbers revenge movie. So I'm very curious to see how the other ones uh, score mm-hmm. out. I mean, it's it's really interesting, because if you would ask me how Point Blank would do, like I, I, even before seeing the movie, I would say this looks pretty standard revenge. It's what the rating system is, is known for. But you feel a wild card like Adam in there, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and that Zero really uh, weighted us down, didn't it? Let's be clear. He gave... Uh, I really like this movie, and thank you, Justin, for bringing it on here. Of course. Um, it looks like Adam gave it a zero and a one and two threes, and Justin gave it uh, three tens. So kind of on uh, different sides of the scale there. Right. Um, I will say, I will say, I had seen this movie before, and I was kind of lukewarm on it, and I didn't remember much about it, and I liked it a lot more the second time. Mm-hmm. So maybe give it like four years and then come back and check it out. See what you think. Maybe this is a movie I feel like would be so much fun to watch at like the New Beverly or at the Frida. You know what I mean? Like I feel like this is like a fun midnight kind of watch with some popcorn and just kind of vibing, you know? For sure. The Beverly is a perfect, perfect place for this, especially like a little bit of like a beat up 35 millimeter reel of it. It'd be great. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, um, yeah, we can watch it again in four years or whatever, but just because Adam gave it a low score on the arbitrary and Byzantine scoring system we have doesn't mean he didn't like the film. Mm. Oh, no, I know. I'm, I'm just saying if you liked it now, I'm sure you'd like it even more. Yeah. Um, so that right. was point. That was uh, Catherine Bigelow's point break. Uh, for our outro episode to Revenge, we give away awards, Justin. So, uh, so far we've had a bunch of our guests say their awards. I'll give you an example. Uh, Adam and I each get an award. Adam hasn't told me his award yet. Do you want to debut that anytime soon, Adam? I have no idea. Okay. Well, my award that we're going to be giving away is the Trevor Dillon Award for Biggest Hunk. So, uh, that's the kind of thing we're going with here, Justin. During our outro, we're going to give away the Justin Moore Award for what? 
Uh, I gotta go with best match cut with the the rolling, <laughs> you know, the 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 sex thing where it's like every character kind of like uh, I don't even know how you describe what that that shot is. It's just awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a match cut. I think um, that's a really really specific award. I look, I love something really really specific. You have your work cut out for you, Adam. Think of something, man. We need that very, very soon. I was going to go with worst match cut. <laughs> well, uh, Justin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Is there anything you want to plug before we get out of here? Um, yeah. I, you know, as Trevor mentioned an hour ago, I'm a, I'm a cinematographer. I do all the things, narrative, music video, commercial stuff. Check me out if you ever need a DP, justinmoredp.com. Um, you can see my work in another Trevor movie if he ever makes another one. Yeah, uh, that that is true. That is true, and we are working on that. Um, give him that Lever Talks handle one more time. Uh, sorry, somehow, all lowercase, uh, one word. Uh, I don't leave a lot of reviews, but I watch a lot of stuff. Come, come disagree with all of my rankings, please. Adam, any plugs you want to give? Yeah, I mean, you know what they say. You never get less with Justin Moore. Mm. But I'm going to go ahead and plug my uh, Instagram, at Projector Fuel. I post uh, movies there. I also want to give a shout-out to a movie, short film, uh, Prefigured. Everyone check that out. I shot it. Did you? I did. I shot it. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to watch and you just want to see stills, they're on my website. <laughs> Ooh, perfect. So, like seven stills. It's, that's the movie. And my plugs, as always, are uh, my Lever Talks is at Captain Dills. I have a list on there of all of the Ghost Party Radio movies we'll be doing. I'll put them in order one day uh, as how they scored on the scale per series, of course. My personals are at Trevor Dills on Instagram and Twitter. And always follow us at Ghost Party Picks on whatever social media you can. Justin, this was this was a delight having you on here. I'm glad that you actually brought a movie from the 60s because yeah. as we're seeing uh, as we go along, a lot of these movies that are available and people are bringing onto the show are uh, movies that are new. I think like six of the eight films are like at least five of the eight movies in this series are from the 2010. So thank you for taking us back in time a little bit. Well, my first pick was The Nightingale and You Vetoed, so that would have been another 2017 pick. So you can thank yourself for us landing on Point Blank. <laughs> it's like a brand new movie. Yeah, no, great. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. Adam, anything else we want to add? Uh, I think that would be it. Thank you so much, Justin. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to Ghost Party Radio. And Adam, finish this. We have officially blanked that point. Bye. 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 Mm, that's a 10.